Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. We're your hosts, Dimitri and Etienne, and today we interviewed Christian and Sarah from the Regen Network. This interview was very interesting for us because as agroforestry farmers, we know that the systems that we put into place have huge benefits in terms of carbon storage, biodiversity, and even depolluting farmlands. And these are things that aren't valued economically um, or are difficult to value economically currently. And this is what Regen Network has been working on, providing potential for farmers to benefit from all these ecosystem services that they're investing time and money into. Yeah, absolutely, Dimitri. And what's amazing is that, you know, we hear a lot about um, carbon credits or biodiversity credits, payment for ecosystem services. And the reality is that it's quite confusing and, and hard to get your head around. And we're really lucky because Christian and Sarah are actually able to uh, work really well together in this interview to give us both like a big picture understanding, as well as zooming in into the really technical details. So I really came out with a much better understanding of what we're talking about. And that is important because I'm sure these um, payment mechanisms are going to become more and more important in the farm economy. Super. So without further ado, let's get into it. So Sarah and Christian, welcome on the podcast. Thanks so much. So glad to be here. Thanks for having us. We're very excited to, to have this chat with you. Um, we'd love to know a bit more about yourselves to start off with. Um, it would be amazing if you could just quickly introduce yourself and tell us, um, you know, how you got into, into this uh, adventure. Sure. Um, I guess I can start out. Um, my name's Christian Shearer. I'm a permaculture practitioner for a long time. You know, I guess this, this part of my life started about 17 years ago when I started a permaculture education center in Northern Thailand. Um, I'm, I assume that many of your listeners are familiar with permaculture, but for those who are not, um, permaculture is a design science that's based around uh, working in harmony with nature, seeing how that we can um, work with natural systems rather than against natural systems. And certainly when we're talking about agri uh, agroforestry and other agricultural systems, it, it really, really comes into play. You know, harvesting water, catching water, recycling nutrients, all this stuff is at the center of mm -hmm. uh, really productive permaculture systems. Um, I lived in Southeast Asia for a long time and worked with smallholder farmers and then got wrapped up in uh, really in all sorts of different ecological agriculture applications and just started to see how hard farmers work and how little reward they get for that, whether that's financial reward or emotional reward for that which is just crazy because all of us literally survive off of the work of our farmers, right? And so yeah. um, in all those years, I have come to really respect and appreciate the hard work of farmers all around the world and wanted to do what I could to contribute to uh, not only farmers doing better in their lives, but helping them to shift towards more ecologically friendly systems because 
my passion for agriculture comes in two fronts. It's both in a passion for working with farmers and seeing uh, rural and agricultural communities thrive. And that means financially better off and ecologically better off. And then my passion also lies in the realm of ecological health. And I see agriculture as one of the most important levers in the world for uh, reversing global climate change, improving our ecological situation and upgrading uh, ecology all around the world. So uh, my work with Terra Genesis International, my previous company was all about that. My work with Regen Network at this time is all about that. And um, it's exciting to see how much, how much action is happening in that space. Nice. It's very interesting. Um, Sarah, maybe you can introduce yourself as well. Yeah, absolutely. My name is uh, Sarah Baxendale, and I'm the Director of Finance for Regen Network currently. And I am a banking assistant turned farmer. Um, I was working in <laughs> New York City in a fancy corporate job. And I became involved with the Occupy Wall Street movement in Zuccotti Park in the financial district and was one of the coordinators of the sustainability working group there. And in conjunction with the um, New York-based environmental activism community I became a part of, I became very exposed to permaculture. So I too am a permaculture designer and teacher. So mm. um, it was a really interesting way to be introduced to conversations around environmental impact in New York City. So a lot of my work, um, which is sort of different than Christian's work, is that my work has been primarily urban in my career over the last decade or so. And I've worked with, at this point, about at least 100 small projects um, in Boston and Philadelphia and New York and Pittsburgh primarily around designing and implementing um, urban ecological design solutions. So I'm, I'm a lover of the city, and my permaculture background is very city permaculture <laughs> as the way that we uh, were taught to look at design systems using the patterns of nature. And so um, my work took me um, most recently to the state of Pennsylvania, which is in the U.S. Mid-Atlantic region. And uh, for the past six years prior to joining Regen Network, I worked as a park planner for the city of Pittsburgh, and I helped to redesign over a thousand acres of parkland using green infrastructure projects as a way to manage um, storm water combined sewer overflow that the EPA um, was demanding that the city of Pittsburgh manage. And mm. I had the privilege, because my family is from Pittsburgh, to uh, actually work on the street where my grandfather grew up, helping to redevelop a property that was formerly a federal housing authority complex that was 107 acres. And we, over six years in conjunction with the community and the city, turned it into the largest urban agriculture farm in the United States. And it contains the first adult urban farmer training program where um, adults can come and rent a quarter acre, a half acre, and start a business. It also contains the largest orchard in the city of Pittsburgh with 252 fruit trees, 
the largest children's farm in the mid-Atlantic region at an acre and a half. Um, and it is a, also a restoration forest project where the land has been put in permanent preservation. So I um, managed a very, very large urban agriculture redevelopment project. It's actually one of Obama's top six sustainability projects in the country. And when I left there, I um, had the privilege of joining Regen Network and bringing the whole idea that you should know the name of your farmer and that we all eat three times a day and that farmers need technical and financial support to be successful. And so I bring all the lens of having been a farmer myself and having a great desire to empower farmers across the globe, as well as directly affect uh, climate change to the work that I have the privilege of doing with Regen. Nice. I would say maybe the, the perfect time to ask uh, ask you guys, what is Regen um, exactly and, and, and what does it do? My co-founder Gregory Landway and I started Regen Network uh, back in 2017 after working with our company Terragenesis International on um, trying to help natural products companies shift their supply from organic and fair trade supply to regenerative supply. And most of those companies had no idea what that meant. And we were trying to help them understand what it meant and help them uh, figure out how they could intervene with their supply chains and upgrade them towards, you know, agroforestry and cover cropping and rotational grazed animals, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that we realized at the, is that the technology was not there to serve that purpose. And so we ended up starting a branch of Terragenesis called Regen Network, which then ended up becoming its own company. Um, so let me dive into that a little bit. And I'm going to stay rather high level here uh, because I okay. want us to get to the point where we're actually talking about how it affects agroforestry and, uh, of course. and ecological agriculture. But to begin with, there's two layers to our company. And on this call, we're mostly going to be focusing on the second layer of our work because that's where, that's where it uh, crosses with agriculture. Uh, but let me give a high-level overview of both of those layers. So first of all is the layer one portion of our work. This is the underlying technological infrastructure for ecological data and ecological agreements. Uh, we recognized that there needed to be a new set of infrastructure, a new set of tools that underlies the way in which people um, uh, share data, uh, create agreements, um, have transparency around what's real and what's not real. It, it, it literally lays down the road upon which all the eco projects can travel, right? It's like a shared, uh, a shared resource. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. And it, the way that we're building Regen Network, uh, once it's built, it's put out into the commons. It's 100% open source. It's governed by the community. It's transparent and open. And it's built this way uh, so that all the different stakeholders can have a shared understanding and shared trust about what's true and what isn't true about ecological data and ecological agreements. Because part of our belief right now is that the problem, the ecological challenge that the world is facing has a lot to do with an imbalance in people's access to information. So one party will say, yeah, these, these things happened. Uh, th we have 
you know, regenerated the soil in this, in this place. And the other people are like, how do we know that that's true? And they're like, well, you just need to trust us because, you know, we have the data, we have the scientists, just trust us. It's true. You know, and the worst example of this are the um, oil companies and the, the, the mining and extraction companies that make claims about what's happened at their sites. And then later on, we find out that those claims are completely false. Mm. Uh, but it's because they had the money to hire the scientists and then the scientists made the conclusions that they asked them to, to make. With Regen Network's layer one infrastructure, that's not going to be possible anymore. If you're going to be able to make, if you want to make scientific claims, you're going to have to publish the methodologies that you're using and make public the the ways in which you're making those claims. So that layer one technology is built with blockchain infrastructure. It's built with a whole software development toolkit that enables third-party application developers to be able to build all sorts of different applications on top of it. Uh, there's a whole world of, of interesting things we could go into there, but I'm going to stop mm -hmm. there for the layer one. Uh, unless you guys have more questions, we certainly can go there. Um, I think we're going we're gonna to delve into that also after some aspects uh, that we want to understand better for sure, but keep going. Great, great. And then layer two... Uh, is the applications that are built using that infrastructure. And at Regen Network, our first application is called Regen Registry. It's a registry for carbon and other ecosystem services credits that aims at democratizing the carbon credit markets and acknowledging whole systems regeneration rather than just fragmenting carbon into a like standalone you know, solution to, to the, the world's problems, right? So, so the, the aim of the registry, the aim of region registry is to be a marketplace for, the work, for a world of different ecosystem services credits, uh, because we understand that all of the farmers out there are all working in their own context. Each watershed is its own unique place with its own unique context. And the, the, the management practices and the um, varieties of fruit and nuts and animals that you're implementing are different than somewhere else in the world. And so the verification of ecological outcomes that are happening in your place is going to be unique from, from other places. We want to enable that uniqueness to, to shine through. Um, uh, uh, with Regen Registry, every project gets its own project page. Uh, every credit issued from that project is tracked and recorded transparently through the layer one technology. And uh, to make it really clear how this works, there's really three parts to this project and uh, to this process. And Sarah is going to be much better at diving into the details of this. But to just on a high level, talk about those three parts. First of all, when a, when a farmer or a rancher approaches us about um, issuing credits on our site, the first thing we need to do is think about meth methodology design. What methodology are we going to use to, to verify that real-world impact has actually happened on your site? And then the second thing is monitoring and reporting. How do we collect the data to understand what has really happened and what's the right data to collect? And then third thing is the credit issuance and then the sales of those credits to to corporations or individuals that are looking to meet their climate commitments. I wanted to just um, um, ask um, um, a question that's still in that kind of um, bigger picture, but 
how how can Regen Network then um, support agroforestry systems? Just to make it really clear for for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the fundamental theories of change that Regen Network is holding is that if the economics of agriculture it shifts in a direction such that farmers and ranchers are incentivized, financially incentivized to use ecologically friendly practices rather than using chemical and conventional practices, that management practices around the world could rapidly change. Because we're talking about individual people, individual families that are making these choices year by year about how it is that they're going to manage their properties. As soon as they understand that the farmer or rancher down the road is getting paid more because they're employing ecological farming practices rather than employing the other way, then that becomes very interesting for them to shift their practices. So Region Network is building the infrastructure to be able to monitor and verify ecological impact, issue digitally secure digital assets that allow them to sell that impact as a second uh, yield on their on their property and thus mm. benefit financially from that from those actions okay that's super interesting and possibly could you share with us um we talked about it um, previously um, when we were talking before the interview about this example, about this farm that you've started uh, working with. Could you describe a bit more um, this, how this works in practice? Yeah, so the example you are referring to is called Wilmot Farm, and it mm. is a many thousand hectare um, ranch in Australia and New South Wales. And um, this is our first carbon credit issuance um, for what we call the carbon plus grasslands methods. And what's happening on this ranch is that you have this really innovative rancher who has been doing high intensity rotational grazing for a number of years. And what we were able to measure using a combination of soil samples and remote sensing methods as we were able to measure the increases in soil organic carbon over time from these clusters of cattle sort of like rapidly moving around the property to different paddocks at different times of the year. And what's really great about working with a project like Wilmot Farm is that they are a very talented series of practitioners and what they're doing is essentially the example that we think can be adopted in that particular region of the world. And by being able to work with this sort of like gold star use case example, that allows us to prove in conjunction with this farm that rotational grazing is a way to sequester additional carbon in the soil, to prove that it can be measured using our remote sensing methods. And for us to essentially put forth a new type of carbon credit into the marketplace. And we think about carbon credits a little bit differently than the way they've been thought about historically. Our approach, uh, we've dubbed carbon plus. And what we recognize is that carbon credit buyers are looking for those carbon outcomes that can be monitored and verified and packaged into a carbon credit. 
because everybody's trying to sink as much carbon back into the earth or sink carbon through other means in order to immediately address climate challenges and the climate impact. But the way that we look at projects is through this lens that Krishna has been describing, this ecological agriculture. And so we have this, um, this pile of ecological co-benefits that are the plus part of the plus in the carbon credits. And there we look at other indicators on a property of what's happening to the ecosystem because of this change in practice. So in the example of Wilmot Farm, we were able to um, use remote sensing to come up with a metric to look at the quality of ecosystem vigor across the entire property to come up with metrics that looked more holistically at the quality of the soil health. And then more generally, uh, depending on the type of project, we can look at other types of indicators like biodiversity indicators or density of forest or water quality improvements or decreases in flooding on a property. The co-benefits indicators are all kind of uniquely packaged with the best management practice that we are monitoring for the carbon outcomes. In the example you explained, uh, you're measuring uh, carbon that has already been stored in the soil. And I'm wondering, is that how uh, you, you're going to measure in the future? If I'm going to you know, give an example in agroforestry, would you always issue credits on carbon that has already been stored in the soil, that is on a mature agroforestry system? Or would you also have a way of incentivizing um, uh, a change in practice that would deliver that carbon storage in the future? Yeah, so we can actually do both. Um, what we're limited by are, um, we use the Sentinel-2 satellites from the European Space Agency um, that went up in 2016. So starting in 2017, they started to have really good um, global imagery data that's all free and publicly available. So any property that um, has been doing practices as early as 2017, we could establish 2017 as a baseline for a project if they have the, you know, the appropriate input data for the method that we're using. So our approach allows us to do two things. It allows us to say, okay, you've already got you know, 100 almond trees, you historically planted them, but we can monitor the increase in the scale of those trees and the increase in the soil organic carbon from 2017 forward. We also have the opportunity and have historically partnered with projects where people are, you know, starting from a blank slate. It's just an empty, you know, piece of property. They want to plant, you know, 100 fruit trees. They want to then do it in order to issue carbon credits as well as, you know, glean all the, the fruit products off of it. And in those cases, we have the ability to partner with someone and um, model out how much carbon that they would get over the 10-year carbon credit issuance time period to give them a sense of how much funding they might receive for their best management practice decisions, and then partner with them to monitor that property over that time period, issue those credits, um, help to sell those credits to individuals and companies that are interested in a high-quality, holistic agriculture and ecology-based carbon credit, and ultimately help those farmers and ranchers 
receive money for the ecological outcome benefits of having planted those agroforestry systems on their property. So we have the ability to do both and the ability to meet a project where it's at, just depending on who it is and what part of the world that they're in and you know where they are at. It makes it very easy for us to meet people where they're at and then help them move forward from wherever it is that they you know are at and want to want to get to. So basically, uh, someone could buy carbon cred- uh, carbon plus credits, but based on future carbon sequestration and actually buy them and fund the planting of the trees uh, that would then sequester that carbon maybe five or ten years down the line. Yeah, technically, a company has the ability to do so. Um, in order for that, in order for us to um, issue carbon credits for future years, um, we would have to have a company that wants to buy essentially the full decade of monitoring time period of credits in order to provide a farmer the funding up front in order to have the money to plant those trees. Um, we, in a 10 year time period, do five monitoring rounds with remote sensing. And from that, we issue four um, batches, four vintages of carbon credits in a 10-year time period. Great. Thanks for um, clarifying that. Um, Just going back to when you were explaining that um, issuing um, carbon credits plus also incorporate this idea of ecosystem vigor and then go beyond the normal carbon credit. Could you tell us a bit more what you're available to me- what you're able to measure in terms of ecosystem services beyond carbon? Sure. So it depends on the system um, that someone is utilizing. We've worked with ranchers doing rotational grazing. We've worked with um, organizations that are using sheep in vineyards. We've worked with agroforestry projects, and we're starting to work with. Um, your sort of standard crop farmers or your regenerative crop farmers. Um, So it depends on where you are in the world and it depends on the best management practice as to what's happening in that ecosystem. But it primarily comes down to, you know, three or four basic things. Um, And you can kind of segment this depending on what the practice is. We look at ecosystem vigor because we want to look at the ecosystem whole. Where there are water bodies on a property, we have the ability to look at water patterns and water quality. Um, We also look um, at biodiversity, diversity of plant species, diversity of animal species, the sort of ecosystem biodiversity interaction of a property. And then one of the main indicators that we focus on is soil health. So it's really looking at the composition and the quality and the change in soil, the change in its water holding capacity, the change in its macro and micronutrients over time. Because what we've found is that a lot of the sort of untapped, you know, unverified, unmonitored carbon that everyone around the world is trying to figure out how to measure is really soil carbon. A lot of people have figured out like, you know, how much carbon is sequestered by a a tree over its lifetime, but not a lot of people have figured out how to look at the soil and to approach the soil as the big carbon sink that we inherently know that it is. So a lot of our ecological indicators are tailored around those three or four pillars. And each project, it really is unique because 
it's in a different part of the country, it's in a different part of the world, it's wetter, it's drier, it has a different growing season, has different rates of growth of the plant, each farmer is choosing a different best management practice. So we try to tailor that palette of looking at ecosystem benefits to the unique ecosystem that we're in and tailoring and accompanying that to the choices that each individual farmer is making on their property. All right, that's that's fascinating. But for me, it really brings up this question of how do you measure all that data in terms of, you know, what tools are you are you using to measure, for example, biodiversity or yeah, so there's really an amazing amount of information that one can glean from satellite data. Everything from land use classification to the change in um, you know plant density over time. You can also classify um, different trees and different plant species. Once you find the spectral signature of one, you can essentially uh, train an algorithm to find that plant across a specific area. It's really incredible. What, wow. what, yeah, it's really cool, actually, um, <laughs> what you can do with the satellite information these days. And the European Space Agency Sentinel one and two um, satellites have been becoming increasingly more complex. So we use that as a way to be able to look at more information faster and to be able to bring down the volume of ground truthing data that is necessary on a property. So when we partner with a new project, um, we have like a, a whole survey of questions. We ask them about what that farmer is seeing on their property. You know, they might be seeing that, you know, their fields are becoming more diverse. They're, you know, they didn't flood as much as the neighbor did during a certain storm, that their streams are running clearer. And so we gather sort of their qualitative reflections about their own property. And then from that, we take a look at what we can do with the available satellite data in that area, because it's not always the exact same amount of you know, satellite information, depending on where you're on in the world and what time of year it is. And then we sit down with the farmer and specifically ask for a limited series of ground truthing information that either helps us to have sort of a double check on what we're seeing from a satellite or provides us a limited series of inputs that we then calibrate the satellite to. So in the example of soil organic carbon, if you were to, if you're a farmer and you were to engage with one of the existing carbon credit registries, what they ask you to do is to essentially take thousands and thousands of soil samples across, you know, it might be a hundred hectare property. And People, farmers, find that to be too expensive and too cumbersome. And so our method, conversely, only requires 20 samples randomly around a property for a 2,000 hectare property size. And from those 20 soil samples, we're able to calibrate the satellite, compare and contrast the information that we're finding, train the satellite to then map across the rest of the area and essentially map the outcomes of those soil sample reports via remote sensing across the entire property at scale. And what we found from it is I find very fascinating. Um, the remote sensing outcomes are about 93% accurate in comparison to soil samples. And given how much, wow. yeah, it's really remarkable. Like, and if you think about it, like it's it's very cumbersome to take a soil sample in the field. It takes a long time. You have to wait for the lab. It's a whole 
time-intensive, labor-intensive process. And a lot of times when you're taking soil samples, you're just kind of like taking some dirt here, taking some dirt there, and hoping that it's representative of the whole property. So the method we're using acknowledges the fact that you can, unless you're measuring literally every square inch of a property, you're never going to have like a full picture of your property's soil anyways. It's just not really practically possible. So we're finding that remote sensing allows us to circumvent that burdensome process by limiting the amount of ground truth data. Right now you're talking about carbon in the soil, right? So yep. You're not measuring, um, the, for example, the nutrient levels and et cetera. We are, we are measuring the macro and micronutrients. We measure all the cation exchanges. We measure bolt density and we measure soil organic carbon. And from those, in conjunction with the satellite tools, we are able to measure soil organic carbon, carbon stock outcome changes, as well as uh, soil health and soil health metric indicators. Um, so they are accompanied together to provide us enough information to use the individual tools in an ArcGIS or QGIS scenario that allows us to model outcomes. So you'll take the samples, you'll measure samples from the soil to look at the micronutrients, et cetera, to mm-hmm. calibrate the satellite. The satellite is not the one that's measuring micronutrients in the soil. That is correct. Yeah. There's a number okay, of yeah. like mm-hmm. statistical processes and very detailed buttons that are pressed along that pathway. But the big picture is we take a very limited series of soil samples and use it to calibrate the satellite so that it then takes what are in those soil sample outcome data and models it across the entire property so you can get a carbon stock outcome or a property-wide soil health indicator. And if we had a picture in front of us, we have these like beautiful interactive maps where you know, it shows the soil organic carbon changes on different parts of the property each time it's measured. And so we're able to see like the pathway of where cattle have gone because that's the pathway of where the carbon is most dense in the property. And in the case of Wilmot, we were able to see from the modeled satellite um, soil organic carbon outcomes, the fences of the paddocks. You could literally see they were just in this specific area. There's clearly a fence there. The carbon in this part of the property is higher than it is on the other side of the fence where they haven't been for six months. But do you get this kind of accuracy with uh, your other um, indicators as well? Because now you mentioned this 93, if I remember, percent for the carbon. Um, do you get that with also like biodiversity, water quality? Yeah. So. Um... It's, it's unique to each property, and that's where those two are a little bit harder to have a, you know, just sort of a black and white response to. But part of what we look at with water is we look at um, water through the lens of soil cleaning water. So we look at the interactions of the soil health indicators and the water patterns on a property. So we can actually map with the satellites the moisture levels um, and the water patterns across the property, which tells us water dynamic information. And then if we're, say, measuring water quality in a stream, we'll have a farmer take just like a couple of little water samples, send them to a water lab, and then look at the quality of the water over time as we look at the quality of the soil health over time 
because we look at the soil as this cleansing sponge to the water that is on the property itself. So that one's a little bit more around dynamic modeling. And with remote sensing, you can actually model the patterns of waves in the ocean and model the melting of glaciers because you can see the dynamic physical changes in those areas. And so there's a, actually an amazing amount of water tools that exist in ArcGIS and QGIS to look at watershed-wide issues or what's happening in a delta system, you know, what's happening with erosion from water pattern or weather changes already. Yeah. So just to zoom out a little bit and put a little bit of this into context about our business model and the way that we're working as a, com- as a company. Um, we have an incredible science team that is led by a PhD remote sensing scientist that's creating really innovative um, remote sensing satellite powered methodologies for measuring specific indicators on the ground. Uh, a lot of that is just what Sarah was just describing. Um, but I also want to recognize that as, as a company, we aim to work in a decentralized way where uh, where Regen Network doesn't need to be the creator of every methodology and the provider of monitoring for every single aspect of these of these properties, so it may be that we have a client who says, you know, I am growing a chestnut operation in Germany, and I've been um, working with uh, the World Wildlife Fund on you know bird friendly chestnut operations, and we have a methodology to measure the biodiversity of bird species. And we'd like to use that methodology. And we have all the data collection provided by this third party. And and at Region Network, we can just say, great. Um, we don't know, you know, you know, how robust your methodology is, but it sounds like it's a great tool that's been uh, developed by great partners. Uh, let's create a credit uh, built around this bird-friendly uh, agroforestry operation. And you know, call it the you know bird friendly, uh, bird friendly uh, biodiversity credit, right? And then, mm-hmm. as long as we publish the information associated with the methodology itself, and then publish the outcomes of that um, of the application of that methodology, we can then put that credit into the into the public. So, the my main point of sharing this is that if if Regen Network was doing this alone, we could only get so far in the world. But what we're inviting is that we want scientists and universities and nonprofits and, and, and other organizations to get involved, to create methodologies that work for their specific context and that cover specific needs that farmers and ranchers have in their areas. And with that information, we can then create a credit class, issue digitally secured credits, and then get that uh, financial ball rolling. Thanks for uh, you know bringing those elements because you preempted one of my questions about you know scaling up um, such methodologies. But I think it's it's much clearer now that you've you've shared these details. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to understand a bit better is okay. So now it's pretty clear. Um, we understand how you measure different ecological parameters and assess soil um, soil health and ecological health. How do you then transform that into a credit that you can sell to a company? Yeah, so our, um, you know, as Christian was saying, you know, the goal of our company, you know, is not to be the only ones pressing the buttons for farmers, the only ones doing the monitoring or the credit design. 
Um, but the process to issue a credit is that a credit class must first be designed and then a methodology to monitor that. And it could be, you know, a traditional methodology. It could be remote sensing methodology. There's, there's not really any limitations on that. Once a methodology is peer-reviewed, it's eligible to have um, credits issued for it. So the credit classes specifically talk about how the items or the ecological outcomes that have been monitored are packaged together into a carbon plus credit. And then ultimately what physically happens is, you know, we take the outcomes of the monitoring reports, we issue on a project page the number of credits that represent the carbon stock and ecological outcome changes between two monitoring periods. And then that number of credits becomes available for sale on the Regen Registry. Our company provides an optional service at this phase where if a farmer or you know an entity already has their own community of buyers, maybe it's the people that sign up for the CSA you know that this is being issued from, or maybe it's a ranching operation that already has local corporate partners. If folks can sell their credits themselves, they are welcome to go ahead and sell them without um, the assistance of our company. But if people don't have those types of connections and they have the option of signing up for our credit brokerage service where we work to link them with individuals and corporations that have uh, goals of you know, addressing climate change, and then they're able to purchase those credits on the Regen Registry. So mainly the clients at the moment, um, what motives do these clients have in purchasing credits? So you mentioned you could be an organization that wants to act positively on the climate. So you you buy those credits or you could be a business that has some regulatory constraints as well. So our credits all exist in what's called the voluntary market space. There's a compliance market space and that's where a lot of your big energy companies, for example, um, are required to operate. So we operate in the voluntary space. So companies that are saying, you know, we want to become climate neutral or carbon neutral or climate positive. And in order to do so, they're unable to address all the carbon in their supply chain through, you know, light bulb changes or, you know, changing the way a factory operates. They end up with extra carbon that they theoretically have to figure out, you know, how to offset. And so we structure our carbon credits as carbon removals because they are pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere into the earth. And then um, we partner with companies that have these goals so that they can pick from a portfolio of options that meet their goals. And our, our projects and our credits focus on looking at ecological and social outcome indicators that are aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals which is a series of goals that many companies are using to drive their business operations. So if I'm a company and I come to Regen Network, I can look through all the project pages. I could say, okay, my employees are really into forests this year. We're going to pick forestry projects. And then they can pick from a portfolio of projects that are on the registry and choose how many carbon credits they want to buy from each project and go ahead and place a purchase right there on the platform. 
We have a list of over a thousand companies that have made public commitments to uh, to reducing their carbon footprint or even going cl- uh, carbon positive over time. And this is a huge, uh, there's a huge movement amongst corporations, international corporations around the world that are recognizing that governments are not able to solve this problem. This is especially true in our country, the United States, where our government is not stepping up to solve the climate issue. So corporations are stepping in and saying, we're going to take a lead on this. Um, And I'm talking about corporations like Microsoft, who recently said, we're going to offset all of the carbon that we've ever produced back to 1975. I'm talking about corporations like Delta Airlines that earlier in the year came out and said, we're going to become the first carbon neutral airline, offsetting all of the carbon that our company um, produces through every aspect of our company. Um, you know, the, the rideshare company Lyft offsets every single mile that every driver in their company drives. Um, and through that process, like Sarah was just describing, those companies are incentivized to reduce their impact first. You know, how can we, uh, you know, reduce the amount of uh, oil that is used or gasoline that's used in our cars, in our Lyft program? Let's get people to ride share. Let's get people to use bikes rather than cars and use little scooters in the city rather than taking rides. But when they don't do that, because inevitably these companies can never get to net zero on their own, they then purchase ecological offsets through a company like ours and through the voluntary markets to then get to net zero or get to uh, net positive. And that's where, uh, that's where the voluntary markets come into play. And that's where our company like Regen Network can really help. And how do you decide on the pricing of these carbon credits? Because so far I understand pretty well the whole chain of, of process, but then at some point you're left with, okay, well, we have all this ecological data and then we have to transform it into a credit with a set price. How does that process occur? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really is a market mechanism and it's, it's all over the place. I mean, for anyone out there that's following the carbon markets, you know that carbon sells from anywhere from 40 cents a ton for certain types of carbon all the way up to, you know, 50 or 100. I saw um, Stripe just bought some uh, carbon for $75 a ton trying to assist in a startup company that's working on sequestering carbon in, a, in an innovative way. Um, so when we go to price, uh, the carbon, it's really a, a matter of what is it that a corporate partner is looking for and how can we match what they need in a way that really meets their, uh, corporate needs and their, their, uh, f- um, budgetary needs around this. Uh, and for us, there's a lot of storytelling involved in this work. So not only are we collecting really robust data on what's actually happening on the ground and being able to uh, help a corporate buyer uh, know for sure that the money that they're spending is actually translated into real world impact, but also we're able to tell that story in a way that's really compelling and interesting for, for the, the company themselves and their, and their board and their shareholders and their, and their customers to really understand that that the company is doing something real. Uh, And and I'd say say the combination of really clear, good data that proves real world outcomes and a story about a farmer and their family and a place being regenerated, that together combines to help us set a price that, that works for all parties.
I think it would be really interesting, um, Christian and Sarah, to to start talking a bit about you know what it means for farmers in practice, um, you know, really from the farmer's perspective. And we we have a few questions um, based on that. So you you already touched uh, touched upon it um, earlier on, uh, but maybe we can go in, into a bit more depth here. So one of the first ones is you know how much work does it actually represent for the farmer um, on the ground in order to satisfy um, the data needs to to get um, a credit? So as your listeners know, uh, to farm regeneratively uh, is something that takes a lot of skill, and it's and it's mm-hmm. something that you're going to be constantly learning and and growing your capacity in over time. As you start to grow your first chestnut trees, or you start to grow your first almonds or start rotationally grazing your animals, you're going to learn a lot through the process and you're never going to stop getting better at it as long as you continue to take a deep interest in what's happening to your property, to your animals, to your trees and to your ecology in general. So so without a doubt, this is something that really does take skill and takes effort. Now, to answer your your question specifically is very challenging because all of these systems are very different. And each farmer or rancher has a different background, a different experience, and different understanding of how to engage with their soil, with their animals, with their tree systems. And so um, each of these, you know, each farmer, each rancher, has a has a unique experience around uh, what it takes to to make this happen. Now, what we do know is that if you're farming in the conventional way, in the way that most uh, ag- agronomical uh, school systems teach you to farm, you are generally farming in a way that degrades the environment. You're losing topsoil every year. You're you're adding chemicals, you're reducing biodiversity, you're, re- you're reducing the health of the water systems around your farming operation. And to shift from a system that, is, that, that follows those kind of practices to a system that really acknowledges and uplifts the dynamic nature of life in your system, honestly, is a paradigmatic shift in, in the way that you're understanding your agricultural systems. Um, now is that going to be so hard that it's not worth even trying? Absolutely not. Is it going to be something that takes a lot of effort to understand and a constant process of learning and growing? Yes. Are you going to succeed in sequestering carbon into your, into your soil right away? Um, maybe not. Some people do, some people don't. It may take some experimentation and trying this or trying that, seeing how seeing how it works to intercrop various things that you can dro- ch- uh, chop and drop into the landscape. It may take experimentation with uh, the 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 size of the paddocks that you rotate your animals into and the frequency with which you rotate to try to understand which which rotational pattern is the is the one that's going to be most optimal for for soil health. Um, it's not nearly as, as cut and dry and, and, um, uh, programmatic, I would say, as the conventional agriculture systems that, that are what our, 
parents and grandparents have been practicing? Yeah, so let's create an imaginary use farmer here. So we're going to call them Farmer Sally. Farmer Sally has 75 hectares of peach trees um, somewhere in the Northeast United States. Um, and Farmer Sally wants to have carbon credits issues that take into account the carbon stock changes in soil organic carbon in her orchards, as well as the above ground biomass um, carbon holding capacity of her peach trees. So in this case, we would, um, you know, we, we, would, we would chat with Farmer Sally and learn about what she's doing with her trees, how she takes care of them, how old they are. Um, is there anything, you know, is she using any animals to graze in between? Is she just mowing? You know, what's the patterns that she's seeing around her property? And that's very much like a simple intake form and, you know, a couple of kind of casual conversations to get a sense of that. And then we would partner with Farmer Sally to ask her to collect um, or provide information that has been historically collected around some of these items. So um, we would ask for soil samples. And at 75 hectare size, we would only need, you know, 20 soil samples from the entire orchard. Um, we would want them to go to a lab and have so organic carbon percentage, macro micronutrients, the cation exchange percentages, um, as well as bulk density measurements for each location. And that, you know, collecting 20 samples is something that can be done in, you know, a couple hours out in the orchard. Um, then we would be, you know, asking her questions like, you know, what species are these? Uh, when, when did you plant them? Can you go out and, you know, measure a couple of diameter at base heights so we can see how big the tree stalks are in a couple of areas? You know, how tall do you think some of your trees currently are? Um, and with just sort of like that limited series of a couple of ground truth points, we can then start using the satellite data and map out her property. So I would map out from the boundaries and be able to identify exactly which, you know, peach varieties are in which areas, how big they are, what we can calculate, what the above ground carbon stock is for those trees, whether they're, you know, newly planted one year trees or they're maturing out 20 year old peach trees. Um, and we can come up with a um, carbon stock number for all of the above ground biomass associated with her orchard. We then take the soil samples, do the remote sensing calibration, and come up with a amount of soil organic carbon sequestration and carbon stocks in her orchard. And from that, we would say, hey, Sally, we did all the math. We came up with this amount of carbon. Um, that is this many you know, carbon plus agroforestry credits. We were able to monitor these other ecological indicators that help tell the story of your property as well. And then we would issue um, credits to her and be able to, you know, keep it really simple and be able to sell the credits in the market system. So um, we approach this as a one ton of carbon sequestered is one carbon plus credit, keeping the math really easy for everybody. And if we assumed that the above ground carbon was an average of 14.88 tons per hectare per year, 
and the soil organic carbon is 4.89 tons per hectare per year. And the credit price is $15 uh, per credit. Then the um, total revenues that could be expected would be about a quarter million dollars. The total costs of monitoring and verification and soil sample and credit issuance would be about $175,000. So Sally could make off of a 75 hectare orchard about 75K um, split up into four separate credit issuances over a 10-year time period. So it's like having an additional annual farm income level over a period of a decade or more. And in some of our use cases, some of the carbon is a little higher. Some of the use cases, their carbon stocks are a little bit lower. It just depends on each individual farmer and each individual property. But that's kind of a ballpark of what would happen if we were to actually partner with an orchard and go through the steps with an individual farmer. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a lot of money. Hey, for a, it's, decent. it's a decent amount. Yeah, we love more money to farmers. That's what we're trying to get. We're trying to help keep the process super simple, super mm -hmm. digestible, really, really easy to fill out the form and partner with us and do all the monitoring cost effectively and efficiently because we understand that farmers are busy. We think their time is extremely valuable. We think the work they do is extremely valuable. And we think that the world should be rewarding them for their amazing ecological practices and acknowledging the roles that farmers have in preserving and restoring ecosystems that we all inherently survive upon. This is really core to our mission that we've designed this process with farmers to make it literally as easy as we can possibly manage. And a lot of our core team have been or are farmers ourselves. So we have asked ourselves all along this way, how, how, how much information would I be able to collect in my orchard? How much time would I have to spend to this? And how, can I, how could I make this process as easy as possible for mm. farmers to engage with? And at the end of this 10-year uh, period, uh, could the farmer potentially start again then and, and, and on the condition that they're still continuing to sequester carbon and then maybe reissue another 10-year period? Would that, on the long term, is that possible? Yeah, so our credit terms are 10 years, and at the end of them, a farmer has the option to renew for another 10-year cycle. So if during that time period they've, you know, at year eight, they've just planted, you know, a whole new orchard section or something like that, you know, we can add that to the bundled location of their property and continue to monitor the outcomes for existing trees and new trees or new management practices that have been added throughout that 10-year lifetime. Because then I guess the, the, from the, the perspective of the, of the buyer is that they would want to make sure that if they invest in these carbon credits, that after the 10 years and that the farmer uh, received all this money, that, he, that carbon is still going to maintain the soil and nothing's going to jeopardize that. Yep. So the term associated with that is called permanence. And the way that we approach this um, is relatively flexible. We have a 25-year permanence time period for the carbon associated with the 10-year monitoring issuance. And there are two options a farmer can take. Um, farmers had the option of putting a covenant on their land. So if it was ever sold, 
they would have to maintain that section of the property, you know, with the conditions that are associated with the carbon credits. Or, um, because a lot of farmers don't like to put covenants on their land, it's a little too permanent for a lot of people. The other option that's the more flexible version is that we have something called a permanence buffer, where we will hold back 20% of all the credits for each issuance into essentially like a holding account. And when we do that final monitoring in year 10 and reconcile the carbon, um, we basically have held back some of the credits in case there's any carbon loss or in case there's, you know, and some of the math doesn't add up, we can basically release that permanence buffer um, either to cover any carbon loss that has happened during the total 10-year time period. Or we would just issue those credits out, you know, as a, a bigger, you know, lump at the end because we held them back just to make sure that the carbon was indeed accounted for appropriately. It seems that what you're describing is uh, supporting farmers that are already doing, um, uh, you know, good practices and taking care of their soil. Could we imagine a scenario where these carbon credits fund the transition of conventional farmers um, to regenerative practices and help them kind of um, counterbalance the additional costs and risks that goes with transitioning. I know I already alluded to this a bit earlier, but I was thinking maybe we mm -hmm. could summarize that through an example as well. Yeah, so the way that would work on our part is if we had a credit buyer that wanted to partner with a project, you know, that was transitioning and wanted to essentially prepay um, carbon credit purchases in order to help fund that farmer implementing those new management practices or planting those new trees. Um, our organization doesn't do technical support for farmers beyond the sort of carbon plus initiatives that we have, but we actually have a number of amazing partners that What they do is, is they partner with agroforestry projects specifically to help them get the upfront startup funding that is a barrier for transitioning. And there, um, there are groups that do that through finding investors that invest in the trees themselves as if they're like an asset. And there are a lot of technical support and grant programs that support transitioning farmers, at least in the United States, um, that are adopting, you know, orchard management or regenerative practices. So we typically like to partner with organizations that can help people with the startup costs. Um, every once in a while, there is a buyer that wants to buy the whole credit issuance and wants to see a project happen so badly, they'll just prepay. And then that money can go to the farmer in order to get the trees purchased and the trees planted. We interviewed uh, a few weeks back um, Propagate Ventures, who had an yeah. interesting way as well of funding farms. I, I know I've seen online that you guys uh, uh, seem to know each other, um, we but do, they were yeah. they were really interesting. So we're going to link here our listeners to Propagate Ventures uh, and check out that interview because it will uh, marry itself very well with uh, what's being uh, said right now about Regen Network. But um, so what I wanted to uh, say about this is that you can you can create quite direct relationships between a buyer and farmers that want to uh, sell the carbon credit. Yeah. So we we have um, we have talked to companies that are so excited about having an intimate connection with 
their environmental and social initiatives and they want you know they they want to be able to visit the farm or meet the farmer or they want mm-hmm. to be able to talk to them sometimes there's projects where it's it's honestly just easier to you know put the farmer and the buyer and us in a room and say okay farmer what are you doing on your property okay company you know what are your focuses is it water is it biodiversity let's figure out mm-hmm. how we can sort of marry this land and this data with the story that that company is really after. Some companies love that intimate connection and we definitely have the ability to provide that. For companies that, you know, that's just a little too much work for them, um, they can very easily just go on Regen Registry. Each project page tells an intimate story of each project, shows the where the property is and, and tells you what they're okay. doing. You can see all of the monitoring report information, what what the outcomes that we've been monitored are. There's videos, there's photos, there's maps, all kinds of cool stuff. So for a company that's like, that's too much work for them, they can go on there and you know filter for agroforestry or filter for forests and then look through the forestry projects and fall in love with one of the stories of the farmers on the platform and just invest their cre- their credit purchases right there without having to go through all of the high touch, you know, getting to know the farmer intimately because not everybody has the time for that. So we have the flexibility to sort of meet companies and meet farmers where they're at because some farmers don't want to talk to people and some companies don't want to talk to farmers. But sometimes they do want to have a conversation and we can we can put them in the, well we can put them in the Zoom room together. <laughs> I I want to add to this that I think that there's also a lot of inter, really interesting international um, uh, climate change finance that's also coming out. The things like green bonds and impact investing that could also play a part here. So in mm. a similar way that Propic Adventures creates pre-purchase agreements for the produce coming off of their agroforestry systems, as it becomes more accepted that as a as a farmer shifts to ecologically friendly practices that they can be ensured that they are going to receive um, ecological assets like carbon credits and biodiversity credits from their actions. Then there is a role for an impact investor to get involved and say, "Hey, I can provide the capital upfront as long as I can share in the rewards of the ecological outcomes that you produce." And so I'm sure that we'll see, be seeing more and more of that rolling out as well. Once we're on the economics and uh, looking at, you know, the value of all of this, I, I also wanted to, to ask about, you know, we've talked a lot about carbon and the value of carbon right now, but what about the value of biodiversity, for example? Do you have a metric of like a ton of bugs per hectare? I don't know how you could, I'm joking now, but, you know, I don't know how you can measure it exactly. Uh, but I, I, I'm curious to see what's the value of, you know, biodiversity compared to the value like of a biodiversity credit or mm-hmm. you know compared to compared to carbon what's it worth well you ask what the value is which is a very different question and then what's the price of these things <laughs> because maybe i should talk more about the price then to make it more specific but yes i understand yeah sure well, i mean just just really quickly the reason i uh, make that make that um difference there is that there are some really interesting reports out about the value of ecosystem services and they are incredibly high. So even as we're talking about $25 or $50 a ton for, for these things, we, there are reports out there that show that the, the value of ecosystem services coming off of one hectare of agroforestry land could be in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of value to society. 
right? And, mm. and biodiversity being one of those things. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in terms of the price of biodiversity credits, they the market is still really small for them. That's it's a pretty nascent uh, market, and the and most of the prices are kept confidential between different parties when they when they engage okay. into voluntary biodiversity um, uh, purchases. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, I can't give you a very um, specific uh, answer there. Biodiversity is a challenging one because it's it's so different in every single place. I mean, are you talking about the biodiversity in a, in an arid desert situation? Are you talking about the biodiversity in the Amazon? Are you talking about the biodiversity in Belgium? Yeah, it's, mm. it touches upon the complexity you have to deal with when you're yeah. you know, finding prices and metrics, etc. It's it's uh, that's one of the most fascinating things about your work there. It's you're dealing with so much complexity. Mm-hmm. And turning it into the language of uh, of uh, you know economics and of modern society, yeah. um, it's not easy. It seems. I think this is part of why we're we're approaching carbon plus with all the ecological and social indicators, kind of as a a pathway for individuals and companies to start thinking beyond carbon, so that mm. we can increase our collective understanding of how ecology works and what economic and social values it has. So that having a conversation around, hey, this is a biodiversity credit becomes more normalized. So part of our challenge as a company is we're trying to innovate and have a whole ecosystem conversation that includes carbon, but is really highlighting like the entire ecological interaction of the earth. And that is just not, not everybody you know, can identify many plants, you know, it's why we find a lot of companies ask about forestry credits. And it's because their staff members can identify a tree. They can't necessarily identify an herb. They don't know their cactuses. They don't understand necessarily like watershed ecosystems. I mean, these are things that us as ecology, biology, agricultural people that we probably could talk about all day. And so we spend a lot of time educating buyers. Why beyond carbon? You know, why look at a whole ecosystem? What do we mean by ecosystem? You know, what does happen on a property when somebody makes a management practice change? Why is that an important thing to incentivize? And then ultimately, how do we collectively value that? And that is sort of a a social conversation right now. You know, what's a company willing to pay? What do we think it's worth? What do the reports say? How dire is climate change? You know, how what's the it's like what you're saying. What's the value of a handful of pollinators? You know, you could track that through the whole where do the pollinators go and what are they, you know, spreading pollen to and how how many crops does a single bee, you know, flutter into and out of and how much of our agricultural production in a year just one bee touch? I mean, these are comp mm-hmm. these are complex conversations to have. So we spend a lot of time educating farmers about our process and a lot of time educating companies and individuals about an entire ecosystem of challenges that, you know, we have to step up to the plate and try to solve one by one. So if we even move the dial a little bit from carbon to ecosystem conversations, we're getting closer to things like biodiversity or, you know, watershed ecosystem frameworks or different things that are much more complex like that. It's really fortunate that carbon can can be used like this as a as a metric, a useful metric, not only for um, you know sequestration and climate change, but also for 
soil health and and all the 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 importance it has in the soil ecosystem. So I guess um, that's very helpful. Um, I wanted to maybe take things down one level and go back to some practical questions. But what's the minimal scale um, that you would be working with with a farm? Because you mentioned uh, some you know monitoring costs, which I'm assuming most of them are fixed costs um, in terms of doing the soil analysis, etc. So small farms can can you work with them as well so in the founding of region network uh, both gregory landway and i a couple of co-founders have spent a lot of time working with smallholder farmers and one of our aims as a company is to get to the point where we can be working with farmers who are farming you know uh, half a hectare one hectare two hectares of land area and be able to do that in such a way that they also can be benefiting from the way that they're serving the ecology and building ecological benefit. Um, now, there definitely is an economy of scale going on. And until we can reduce the cost of monitoring and we have enough of a robust data set that we can extend and correlate into those small farms, for the time being, uh, we haven't been able to, to, to pro forma out uh, small farms like that and make it profitable for them, them to engage in this at this time. But we're seeing that as we automate these remote sensing uh, methodologies, the price of that monitoring is coming down and down. And we see a point in the not too distant future where we will be able to engage with, with smallholder farmers on, on that scale. Now, Sarah, maybe you can speak to what is the kind of minimal size that we're seeing for uh, farms at this time to, to, to fall in the net positive financial outcomes uh, with an engagement like this? Yeah, so from the technical detail, um, the answer to this question is uh, a function of three things that are all variable. So <laughs> it's, this is, there is not a straight answer to this exactly. Um, scale, the appropriate scale is determined in part by credit price. The higher the credit price, the smaller a parcel can be, and also the um, the carbon stock valuation. So the percentage or the you know tons per hectare per year of above ground biomass in agroforestry and tons per hectare per year for soil organic carbon. As there is more carbon in the soil, you can work with smaller properties. So the example I gave earlier was seventy hectares, and at sort of the average Northeast U.S. modeled rates for those carbon sequestration metrics I just mentioned and a $15 credit price, a 70 hectare size is about the minimum of what can be profitable for a farmer. And right now we're in the process of trying to figure out how we can make the process even more affordable for smaller farmers. And part of that comes with our goal to um, automate as much of the remote sensing methodology work as we can, which drives the cost down significantly for each monitoring round. But there ultimately is you know, a question to be asked for each farmer. Our remote sensing methods may not be the appropriate monitoring tool for all property sizes. There are other, you know, ecological monitoring systems that can be used for very small use cases 
that can model out how much carbon is probably in your trees very approximately, but can model it. Um, And so for a very small farmer, in some cases, those models may be the more cost-effective monitoring approach than the remote sensing methods that we use. Our remote sensing methods are very accurate. They're very much based on a measurement framework, but that measurement framework is not always needed by every credit buyer and is not always appropriate for every property scale at this point. Okay. That's very interesting. You know, the problem is that we always reach the end of our interviews and we have so many things to ask and then we have to scramble together the like the the most uh, interesting questions that we, we, we can. Um, and one of the things that I thought throughout the, the whole interview now is, you know, this is great. All this data is amazing for, for obviously for creating carbon credits and creating income for the farmers in this way. But also it seems to be a huge amount of information and data that the farmer can use to improve his techniques. And so uh, this, all this data, are you also, for example, capable of, of selling it to a farmer or providing it to farmers so that they can then use to understand, okay, you know, I did this there and this, the carbon improved in this way. And you seem to be very, to be able to be very specific and especially uh, geographically speaking, you know, you can be very precise. Is this something that's part of, of the services you could offer? Absolutely. And first of all, before we get into selling the data to the farmers, we want to make sure that people understand that we're not running the Facebook um, business model here where we take your data and don't value it in in that direction. So first of all, mm-hmm. when we collect far, uh, data from farmers, farmers have an option. Farmers are the owners of that data and they have an option of either um, releasing into into a pool of data that they can then sell it from, or releasing it in a kind of a Creative Commons license where others are able to to use and benefit from that data um, uh, for free. Um, we're not in the business of of trying to monetize that data uh, as a primary uh, aim here. Our primary business is to serve farmers and help them to get to to move on their path towards ecological soundness. Um, I wish we could pull up a screenshot here for your viewers because there's some really beautiful imagery that Sarah was describing earlier that's coming off of the Wilmot Ranch uh, that we worked with in, in New South Wales, Australia, that that literally shows the difference between two different paddocks. And we don't know what the farmers did on the ground that made the difference between the amount of carbon they sequestered on one side of the fence compared to the other side of the fence. But when we feed that information back to the farmer, that paddock five did much better than paddock three, the farmer can then clearly use that information in informing how they then um, move their animals around in the following years and continue to sequester even more carbon and build even better soil. So yeah, incredibly valuable stuff um, being able to be fed back. Yeah, so so I wanted to add also just that the data we're collecting from a farm is qualitative in order to fill up the project page where they write their own story and you know they share where their farm is and they choose to share their own photos and videos. Um, but the amount of information that we're collecting to do the monitoring is actually incredibly limited. You know, it's really a handful of ground truth information, some soil samples, and a property boundary. Um, so we're not collecting tons and tons of management data from farmers unless they're specifically called for in the monitoring methodology. 
And one of our strategies um, that we're starting to move towards is partnering with farm management applications that farmers are already using. Mm. So they can like literally press a button and say, I want to, you know, I want to issue carbon credits on Regen Network. And then it basically sends us their data from their farm Mm. management app to our intake form and automatically gets them started with the process. So they don't even have to like export stuff and upload stuff. Um, We're, I mean, our, our information gathering is not, you know, the outcomes can be used to inform someone making better best management practice um, decisions. And those types of maps that Christian is discussing are really amazing visuals to support that aim. But, you know, we're not collecting piles and piles of farmer data. Which is because we, okay. we don't need that much farmer data to do a lot of the, you know, a lot of the monitoring that, that we do in-house. It just really doesn't require, like, it does not require every single detail about a farm. It only requires a specific set of information. And we try to not collect information that isn't directly related to what we need because we think that's cumbersome mm. to a farmer. Just to understand, at the moment uh, all of this is happening in the U.S., um, what kind of plan do you have for scaling Regen Network? Um, are you planning it will be available internationally? And if so, in, in how many months or years? Regen Network is in, in a moment of growth right now. We've just added three developers to our team over the last couple months, and we're adding a couple more developers to the, to our team by the end of the year. Uh, we're currently heads down, focused on developing those layer one uh, uh, tools to provide the ecological infrastructure for a world of different applications. Our Regen Ledger, our blockchain associated with our project, is launching in Q1 of 2021. So it's a big moment for our company where these tools actually become decentralized and we can galvanize a community of people around those tools to build applications to to address all sorts of needs. For Regen Registry, our first credits on the registry are basically going live very shortly. uh, And we have a pipeline of projects coming behind that will then fill that out. So um, the the next uh, 12 months, 18 months are going to be huge for our company. It's going to be really exciting to see uh, where we can go and how far we can get in that time. I would also add our entire team is international and our first project is based in Australia. So we may be a U.S.-based company, but our ability to monitor um, ecological indicators and best management practices is really very global in nature and global by design. Thank you. Um, Maybe as the final question, what are the main challenges that you face in the next months or years to um, upscale your operation and have regenerative agriculture change uh, scale? I'll I'll speak on a high level here about the challenges that uh, Regen Network faces. I think one of the big challenges is um, for people to understand that we're stepping out of the conventional business model and moving into a model that invites a network of participation. At Regen Network, we often say we want to out-cooperate the competition, right? We're building a decentralized 
system that invites in the participation of farmers and citizen scientists and universities and others to to bring their knowledge and their expertise to the table so that we can all move forward and advance this. Uh, reversing global climate change and getting our planet back on an ecological path towards health is the most important thing that we can be doing right now. And personally, I'm just not interested in um, in the, the old school comp competitive business model techniques that, um, that people are used to. And so there's a, there's a paradigm shift that is sometimes difficult for people to wrap their heads around when they're trying to understand how it is that we're working and how it is that we're trying to bring this to the world. That for me is one of the biggest challenges that I've seen going forward. Yeah. Um, I'm always like, I'm always in a more detailed level than Christian. I always love his explanations, like a big picture framework. I think to accompany what Christian said, carbon credits are inherently complicated. It's a lot of terms you have to understand. There's a lot of requirements that carbon credit buyers have that pin us in around how much we can innovate and still develop a credit that say a Microsoft's going to feel comfortable buying. So that middle ground is, is challenging for us from a design perspective to simplify it as much as we can for a farmer while still having this very high quality framework that the broader market currently demands. I, I think that as, as companies become more comfortable with ecology, that may shift a little bit because they may understand why some of those frameworks are a little too stringent for actually getting enough projects, issuing carbon credits around the globe and having companies buy them that we actually do something at a global scale around climate change. I think that the, uh, another challenge I see is that a lot of corporations right now have just made big goals, but they haven't all come up with an explanation of how they're going to meet those big goals. A lot of companies that we're talking to are just kind of mapping their supply chain, trying to figure out what their you know carbon load of their company is in order to then ask themselves in the next year or two, okay, now what do we do about it? So we're finding that we're kind of ahead of some of the curve with a, of the number of these things that we're developing. And we spend a lot of time educating farmers and a lot of time educating companies. So we're really looking forward to when companies start to understand ecology at a deeper level and are coming to the table saying, carbon is valuable, but the ecosystem is also valuable. We're coming to Regen Network because you understand how to couple both together. And that's the story that we want to align ourselves with as a company trying to create climate impact. We want a whole systems impact. We're not just trying to, you know, put a carbon credit on the accounting board and say, I sunk some carbon. I, we will look forward to when companies are, are coming to us saying, we want to restore a whole ecosystem. We want to restore the Amazon. We want to empower farmers. We want to re-whole ecosystems. When that sh paradigm shift happens, that's when we are sort of the perfect company for mm. companies to partner with. And so we hold that aim knowing that that's where we're heading because that's where we think the conversation needs to go. We wish you good luck with that because it'd be amazing to see 
this grow and as as farmers ourselves um it'd be amazing to yeah to see these tools come to us and and help us um you know have more profitable and ecologically rich farms absolutely thanks for having us on and thanks for all those listeners out there who are who are you know revitalizing the ecologies in your landscapes I and mean, we are doing what we're doing because we appreciate so much what you're doing thank you very much for making it this far and we really hope that you enjoyed the episode with christian and sarah as always you can find all the links below in the description don't hesitate to visit our website where we have lots more info on on the podcast and the work that we're doing And again, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us, give us your feedback, ask us your questions, provide some recommendations of people you'd like us to interview. We'd love to hear what you have to say and we'd love to chat. So thank you so much and until next time.